Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and on today's episode, editor John Ralston sits down with reporters Jackie Valley and Megan Messerly to discuss the 2020 presidential candidates' campaigns and funding education, which is now being talked about at the county commission level, thanks to a tax hike flagged for that purpose. Before we get into that, though, here are a few headlines from indie news stories that aired this week on KUNR Reno Public Radio. Nevada's cannabis industry has broken a record for tax contributions with more than $100 million in revenue collected from dispensaries, cultivators, laboratories, and producers during fiscal year 2019. Marijuana tax contributions have increased by 33% year-over-year, from about $75 million paid during fiscal year 2018 to just over $109 million in fiscal year 2019, when fees are included. While the revenue has been useful in bolstering state revenues, divvying up marijuana money has been a hot topic for policymakers in recent years. A major sticking point has been whether the revenue ends up in the state's education account. For example, the state collected nearly $70 million in pot-related taxes in 2017, but just over $27 million of revenue was deposited in the distributive school account, the state's main education account. In May, the legislature passed ratified by diversion to the Rainy Day Fund by sending excise tax revenue directly to the distributive school account. This is expected to add $120 million to the education account over two years. Nevada senior senator, Democrat Catherine Cortez Masto, has joined 23 others in asking the Trump administration to end a policy that keeps more than 30,000 asylum seekers in Mexico while their immigration cases are processed. The Migrant Protection Protocols, also known as the Remain in Mexico policy, keeps immigrants who are seeking asylum in the U.S. in Mexico until their court hearings. While the Trump administration has deemed the policy as a common-sense approach to handling asylum cases, opponents say the waiting period for asylum seekers leaves them in dangerous cities on the Mexican side of the border. In the letter, the group of Democratic and Independent senators say the policy damages the country's status as a global leader in protecting refugees. For her part, Cortez Masto has sponsored or co-sponsored some two dozen bills on immigration policy during her time in the Senate. These bills range from standardizing treatment of immigrants detained at the border to keeping families together that have crossed the border. Individuals who complete a mental health diversion court program in Nevada cannot be charged under a state law prohibiting mentally ill individuals from owning or possessing firearms. That's according to a recent ruling by the state Supreme Court. The ruling by the court fleshed out the section of state law governing which groups are prohibited from owning or possessing a firearm and could potentially affect the number of gun sales rejected under Nevada's prohibition on completing legal gun sales to anyone adjudicated as mentally ill. In their order, the justices wrote the section of state law in question required an individual to have been adjudicated as mentally ill or committed to a facility by a court. A voluntary diversion to a treatment program did not meet the high threshold for taking away gun ownership rights. The court's decision also noted that the law did not require a person enrolled in a mental health diversion program to have their records and names transmitted during the state system for background checks on firearm purchases. Instead, it requires criminal history records to be sealed if a person successfully completes the program. Only persons formally deemed mentally ill by a judge would have their information transmitted to the background check database and would be unable to purchase a gun. For KUNR News, I'm Joey Lovato with the Nevada Independent. All right, I'm here with Megan and Jackie. We have all survived the UNLV parking situation to be here, and we're at least we're out of the heat. Uh, hello to both of you. Say hello to our listeners. Hello. 
Hello. All right. That was Megan and Jackie in that order. All right. Big news uh, in in Nevada right now is all the presidential visits and the ongoing debate over education funding. And so we're going to talk about both those topics. And I can't think of uh, two better people uh, to have here than Megan and Jackie. They know these topics inside and out. So, Megan, let's start uh, with uh, 2020 here in Nevada. And before we do, I do want to say that in case you don't know, in the unlikely event that you don't know, Megan is now doing a, a bi-weekly newsletter called Indy 2020, uh, which has all the news that you could possibly want and more. And there are also links uh, to gifts and other of Megan's favorite things so you can get more insight into who Megan really is. And believe me, that is going to be frightening for some of the people who read (laughs) the the, the indie. But seriously, you should really subscribe to Megan's newsletter. It's going to be the place to get all the 2020 information. You can go on the uh, indie site, uh, the NevadaIndependent.com, and it's easy to sign up for it. So, Megan, your big piece that you've been working on, and we've been trying to get a handle on what these campaigns are doing here. There have been some national stories, the usual parachute, parachute kind of journalism where they've come in. Uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign is a monster, etc. You didn't find anything much different, although I thought what you found about some of the ones, as you put it, punching above their weight and Joe Biden's campaign was interesting. Talk about what you found out. Right. So I, I think that, like you were saying, the sense that Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren's campaign is the biggest here. They got on the ground the earliest. I don't think that was a shock to anyone that, you know, other people have talked about that before, too. So that I don't think was necessarily huge news. But um, another thing that was really interesting, you know, it's not mentioned, uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, his campaign is only a little bit smaller than hers. She's at about 45 and he's at about 40. Um, so he has a pretty substantial operation here as well. Um, and then another one that, that came up pretty often was California Senator Kamala Harris. Her team is actually, I, I was kind of surprised actually by how small her team is by comparison. So they only have about 25-ish people here. Uh, I think it's like 28 was the exact number compared to, to Warren's 45, but they really have made a lot of strategic hires. They hired early, which I think helped a lot in terms of the talent they were able to recruit on their team. So she was widely cited as having some of the smartest hires or having made some of the smartest hires. Like you mentioned, though, the punching above their weight, there were two campaigns that was like, no matter who I talked to, they always mentioned that New Jersey Senator Cory Booker's team and then former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro's team were, you know, are just a presence everywhere. Like whatever community event they're at, they have organizers there, they're a presence. Um, they're reaching out to these, you know, progressive organizations in the community. I, I, I really, just from every person I talked to, those were the two that the campaigns or that people singled out as being the campaigns that really are being everywhere, despite being so much smaller of a team. Cory Booker's team is about 20 and Julian Castro's team is only three people here. And so they've managed to do that with just their three paid staff members um, and the interns that they have on their staff. It's interesting. Some people may not realize that the, the, the Nevada has a caucus, not a primary. It's not until February 22nd of next year, but we're third after Iowa and New Hampshire. So we're, we're considered an important uh, early state. So they are coming a lot already. It's interesting, I guess, uh, and you actually got some lists of, of who some of these staffers are. A caucus really is an organizing event, much more so than a primary is in some ways. It has all these arcane rules, and, and you have to you know get up to the 15% threshold, and if you don't get there in the caucus meeting, then you can go caucus with somebody else. So 
Uh, when you talk to people, Megan, uh, the, the, the trade-off between having a great number of staff, which is important for organizing, or as you mentioned, Senator Harris, who has fewer staff but has hired Megan Jones, who is a well-known operative in the state, used to work for Harry Reid, has done work with environmental groups and, and, and others, and Emmy Ruiz, who was, was here uh, for national campaigns for both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Uh, the, the trade-off is some of these uh, may have a lot of staff here but maybe not have the experience. To, for a caucus that Emmy Ruiz and Megan Jones have, right? What's the trade-off there, do you think? Right. Well, and I think that's what that's what people were saying. You know, folks are taking a close look at this. You know, they're saying you can either have sort of power in numbers, just sort of blanket, you know, bl- blanket the world, blanket, you know, send out all your organizers to all these events. Um, that's one strategy. Or you can just be really calculated with the way you're, you're spending your campaign workers and where you're sending them to. And I, I think that's what we're seeing in the contrast between the Warren campaign and the Harris campaign here is those two differing approaches that they've taken to the operations they've built up here in the state. Let's talk about Sanders for a second. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders did very well here. People remember the last time out, he won New Hampshire, and, and he had been behind in Nevada by as much as 25 points in, in the polls, eventually ended up losing by only five or six points, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but it seems like there's a different vibe, if you will, with the Sanders folks this time. They don't have all the same people. It was kind of an organic thing that came out of nowhere last time. Uh, g- give me what you found about the Sanders campaign this time. Yeah, and I read about this, oh gosh, it was probably a couple weeks ago now, um, specifically looking at the way that, you know, Bernie Sanders is running his campaign this time around. One, he started a lot earlier than he did last time around. So that gives him the advantage. He's done this before. There are supporters. People know already know who Bernie is from 2016. Um, but he hired a very different staff. Um, you know, I've, I've reported about this before, but his campaign manager um, is a f- former re- readite as well, uh, has a lot of experience. He has made a lot of strategic hires here in the state as well. People who know the state, um, like Peter Koltak, who's been involved with Nevada politics, worked for the Senate Dems. You know, he has hired a, a different sort of group of people than he hired last time around, back when it was this very organic grassroots, you know, just trying to get anyone to cobble this team together. Um, and also being, you know, so late when he came in that it was harder to hire staff. So he really has formed a different operation. So it's sort of this, you know, hybrid of trying to be really calculated and thoughtful and planning really early on on, you know, to to run a successful campaign here, but also meshing that with sort of like you were mentioning this grassroots organic sort of enthusiasm. Um, You know, if you go out and you talk to Bernie supporters, they're very passionate about him as a candidate, you know, not not only just his policies, like they just love him. And so I think it's, I think for them, it's been um, a hybrid of sort of melding these two of sort of the, the, the methodical operational side of things, but also trying to, you know, energize the base and take um, full advantage of that passion of their supporters. Yeah, it's interesting if, excuse me, if I asked like a season reporter such as yourself and you didn't know which campaign has hired Peter Koltak, a former uh, operative up in Carson City, and and not one, but I think three people who used to work for Harry Reid in, in, in his office, you would think, okay, which establishment candidate are you talking about? Right. Which may be, you know, some, some folks might say, well, that's totally hypocritical of Bernie to hire these people. On the other hand, he said, they might say, okay, he's learned his lesson. You can't just have this organic chaos to win these, these, these events. It looks like he's learned the lessons of 2016 to me. 
Yeah, and certainly I think there's something to be said for, you know, grassroots enthusiasm. But like we are talking about at the earlier part of this conversation, in Nevada, winning the caucus is all about organizing. And it's not particularly exciting. It's just this methodical, you know, you need to you need to have the troops and you need to send them out and you need to, you know, make your phone calls and have your, you know, it's just this very methodical operation. So I think we've seen sort of, um, you know, acknowledgement of, of the way that a campaign needs to be run in Nevada. You know, not that they like you were mentioning, didn't manage to do a lot in 2016. They did. And I think he came a lot closer here than anyone, you know, would have thought he would have come. But I think they've realized now that that could, you know, that having this kind of methodical operation could be, you know, that that couple percentage point difference of turning out every last voter. So let me bring Jackie into this discussion for a second. And and I'm going to divulge some indie (laughs) secrets here. Uh, uh, and not, not that Jackie actually fell asleep while Megan was talking about this, <laughs> but, but, but the, the Jackie uh, uh, is very upfront uh, that, that she doesn't love politics as much as some uh, of, the, of the other reporters uh, do. And Jackie, is, for some of you who, who may not know, uh, Jackie is a beautiful writer. She's written some of the best features that we have had uh, in, in, the, in the indie, and yet you're you're more of a normal person, I'm going to say it, than, 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 <laughs> Thank than, you, than, than, than any of the rest of us. And, and so when you when you read all this stuff, and you've been to one or two of these events. Oh, I many. Think. Okay. You've been to, what's, what's, what's your feeling as a normal person when you go? It is remarkably early for normal mm-hmm. people, right? Yeah. And I, well, when Megan was still in Carson City, I was the 2020 de facto reporter for a while. So I went yes. to many of these candidates. Thank and you, Jackie. you're welcome. <laughs> I didn't totally hate it. Um, <laughs> I didn't totally hate it. An endorsement from Jackie. You know, but early on, this is, we're talking like February, March. And at that point, certainly it was your diehards, your political junkies that were attending these events. And, you know, I, I wrote a whole story about it, and they were trying to hit every candidate they could, and they were comparing notes and so on and so forth. I don't know whether that's changed so much in, like, the last month. You know, but one thing that struck me is Megan was sitting here talking about all the staffing numbers, and, you know, at the time I had no knowledge of what that looked like, and I think it still wasn't fully built out, but – there's always going to be hiccups, you know, there's, the donuts are going to be late, um, there's going to be a fiasco with getting people in and out. So at the end of the day, certainly with Warren and Sanders, those seem way more built up and like you're attending this very prestigious high security event and some of the others aren't so much, but otherwise they looked pretty similar to me. You have a really good ear and eye for people and their demeanor and, and you've done, you've gotten, been able to extract great quotes from some of them. Jackie, did you just, I mean, there's a lot of talk about the democratic enthusiasm. They want to beat Trump at, at all costs. Did you detect that kind of enthusiasm even a year out as, from the caucus as you were talking about in February and March? Or was it, were people going crazy? Were they, were, were they just happy to be there? Were they kind of bored? What, what, what was the general vibe in most of these events you went to? Yeah, some. It, it depended. I think, you know, when I was at the Sanders event in Henderson, that was definitely more like you, you thought the election was two weeks away. That was just the feeling of it. Um, so there was a lot of that. I will say when I was at like a Tulsi Gabbard event, that seemed more exploratory. People were there just to kind of see who she was. and Most people still haven't heard of her. Yeah, I get yeah. a sense of it. Um, then, you know, there were other events with, um, I think it was, well, Seth Moulton's done a lot with veterans. Um and some of those were like a little bit more issue oriented. So those brought out another particular set of people. It wasn't so much like we got to get Trump out of office, but what are you going to do for us and the VA and our benefits? So 
It's been a little bit across the board. I found it interesting that Seth Moulton, who's no longer in the race, came to Nevada several mm-hmm. times. A lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he really did, right? By the way, that reminds me of something else uh, that we should hype here, uh, Megan. Uh, and Megan was par- part of uh, the, the design team on this presidential tracker, the candidate tracker that we have, which I believe is the best one in the country. You want to know who's been here, how many times, exactly where they were, and upcoming visits. You should go on, uh, on the Indy site and check out our tracker. I, I do want to talk about some of these education issues in a second, but I want to talk about one more thing with you, Megan, and, and, and it has to do with uh, uh, Julian Castro's campaign. When you mentioned uh, that he only uh, has three people on, on, on the ground here, uh, I think he actually had five or six staffers come to an interview that, that you and I did with him. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, it, it, it seems like forever ago, but it was only uh, uh, just a few days ago, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and what was interesting to me about him is, is we both kind of pressed him on like, you're only at 1%. What in the world are, are you doing? And he seemed to me to be pretty clear-eyed about it and almost, I mean, obviously politicians uh, can be good actors. We both know that. But he seemed to say, listen, I, I know what the history says, uh, I, I, but I, I, I believe that with so many candidates in the race, uh, there's still a chance. Yeah, I think I think that's interesting. And I, for me, it just sort of, you know, I, I keep thinking about the upcoming debate and how we'll have one debate stage with 10 candidates and really how that's going to help narrow the field. And so the fact that we've seen some of these candidates that are, you know, polling lower 1%, 2%, you know, this gives them a chance to be up there with sort of the, the you know, front runners or those we think of as the front runners at this point in time. Um, so it really does narrow the field. And like you've said, with Seth Moulton dropping out, and um, we saw New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand drop out, you know, we're starting to see as very small narrowing of the field, but that does at least help to focus attention. And we've also seen, like you, like you were saying with, with Julian Castro, he's made Nevada a, a focus. He's made it a priority. And he talks about this at his events. You know, he kind of he kind of says it this way, like, you know, we're going to do well in Iowa. We're going to do well in New Hampshire. Then we're going to win Nevada and we're going to win Texas. And like, this is going to be how he's going to build his um, momentum, you know, and I, I think he's pretty clear to, clear-eyed about it. You know, you can't, you can't just forsake Iowa and New Hampshire, but, you know, I think he really thinks that <laughs> his message resonates here, um, you know, resonates with our very diverse population, you know, very di- diverse compared to Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, so he's sort of just taken a different approach with where he can spend um, his resources and where it's best to allocate staff and, um, you know, how many staff he can hire in some of these early states. Yeah, I really think it, it, it's a smart move by him. What has he been there, eight, nine times now? Yeah, I think it's seven, I think it's either seven or eight. Seven or eight, yeah, he's been here a lot. Let's switch gears and, and, and talk about a, a state issue, probably the most important state issue, uh, which is education funding, which started uh, this year up in Carson City. Uh, and, but now, for, and this is very unusual, and Jackie, talk about mm-hmm. this. You covered a county commission meeting uh, this week in which education funding was discussed. Why and what happened? So it dates back to the legislative session when there was a bill called AB 309, and basically lawmakers didn't have enough votes to pass the tax increase up in Carson City. So they formed this bill that said, okay, Clark County or commissioners in any uh, Nevada county, if you want to increase the sales tax by up to a quarter cent for these very specific education or social service avenues or directives, you can do so. But we're giving you the power to do that. 
And so this has been playing out since then. There was a July meeting, joint meeting with the Clark County School Board and Clark County Commission discussing how we'd actually use this money. Um, nothing was decided. There were just a variety of suggestions thrown out. Because they're looking at things like preschool, uh, adult education, truancy reduction, teacher retention. That's on the education side. So it has to be within that realm. So there was that discussion. And then what happened yesterday was the Clark County Commission held its public hearing on the matter and then ultimately voted on the ordinance. So they didn't propose the full quarter cent. They proposed an eighth of a cent. And that passed, um, however, came with some conditions, one being that the uh, tax will sunset in June 2021, so right after the next legislative session, and the other being that it's not just us pushing money to the school district. The school district will have to apply for essentially grants for these programs. So as of right now, we still don't know exactly how that money will be spent other than it'll be in one of those categories, but what those programs actually look like remains to be seen. But we will say that, that those categories that you listed at the beginning uh, for education, you cover education uh, as much as anybody, those are all very important things that the school district needs, Oh, right? sure. They're high need, and they're also the things, though, that even though, let's say pre-K, for instance, all the research shows that the earlier you get kids, especially from low-income families and neighborhoods, into pre-K, the long-term results are better. You know, it's simple return on investment. But there's never been, you know, adequate funding for K-12, let alone pre-K. So this is a way to get at that in a different sense. Now, I think the question is, though, you know, if you have less than two years now with this money, how much will you accomplish and, and will it be able to continue in perpetuity? Well, let's, we'll talk about the sunset, <laughs> in, in, in which I, a term I never thought I would have to hear again after the last few uh, le legislative sessions, but we are. So this is by far from the first time that the legislature, not wanting to pass a tax increase or not wanting to take responsibility, has punted it to the local governments. And these county commissioners uh, did, were, seemed far from thrilled, right, that they were, they, were, they were given this responsibility. Yeah, it certainly wasn't an easy discussion. Um, the final vote was 5-2, which was the bare minimum they needed to get this passed. Because um, they needed two-thirds. Yes, they needed two-thirds. So uh, Commissioner Lawrence Weekly and Commissioner Larry Brown, they were the opposing votes. And they brought up uh, some of the, the points that were criticisms all along, one being that this is a regressive tax that will potentially burden lower income families by it being a sales tax. Um, and then Commissioner Brown brought up the point that, hey, is this really our job? You know, are we creating this slippery slope by all of a sudden having to approve tax increases for education? You know, we're supposed to be public safety, social service safety net, that type of thing. Why are we getting in the business of education when that should be a state and legislative uh, responsibility. So that was an interesting discussion. I don't think all the other commissioners totally disagreed, but you know they also viewed it as well. Here's an opportunity for us to do something, and you know maybe the silver lining will be that there's more collaboration, even though I hate that word, between the school district and county. Uh, Jackie Jackie is also the uh, uh, optimist uh, on our staff. <laughs> she always wants to think the best, which shows you that she doesn't cover politics <laughs> that, that, that much, or she perhaps would not be that way. One thing I'm wondering before I bring Megan in to talk a little bit about the legislative side of this is what was the thinking behind an eighth as opposed to a quarter? You cut it in half, it's half the political damage. I mean, that's to me, the, the political calculation there makes no sense. What was the substantive reason they gave. There really wasn't one yesterday. And maybe there was that we just saw it more missed in between. But at the discussion in July, it seemed this is still the quarter cent. And then the ordinance came and said eighth of cent. 
So when you're looking at it, the, the original estimate was that the quarter cent would bring in about $108 million. Uh, so now, what, $54 million? My guess is that it was maybe just more palatable, they thought, to the, the average public. To... I don't know why they would, they, would, they would think such a thing. That's crazy. So, Megan, let's talk about the, the situation in the legislature uh, and, 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 and in which Jason Frierson, who was the speaker, proposed this bill, which, which had a lot more in it um, than, than, than just the, the, the aspect that Jackie is talking about. But the centerpiece was essentially Jason Fryson announcing we are going to take this quarter cent that will pay for the things for education uh, that Jackie mentioned, and we're going to give it to the county commission. And this was fairly late in the session, as I recall, right, when he, when he did this, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And what, what, what was the rationale that they gave? Do you remember? I mean, so you have to think about this, I think, in the context of the final few weeks of the legislative session, which... You know, it like always comes down to funding and education, like all, you know, like obviously there are ongoing conversations about, you know, what education funding should look like in the state, right? What do we need to be doing long term? But it always comes down to the wire, you know, this decision. And so, you know, it's against this um, backdrop of uh, this this getting rid of this payroll tax sunset conversation, which is also happening at the same time. Um, so that conversation is happening, you know, on, on one side, um, the Clark County School District is talking about, you know, uh, we need more money, you know, to make these teacher pay raises work. So you have all these different sort of education conversations happening at the same time. And I think as p- sort of part of part of that, and especially the school district saying, you know, we, we have this need, you know, we don't have enough money. And, you know, the number was constantly changing. It seemed like every day there was a new number for, for, for how much the school district needed. But this really was, you know, a partially, I, I think, a response to that of saying, okay, well, here's an additional tool for meeting some of that need. And also, like we we're talking about, passing that two-thirds vote along to the county commission while, you know, Democrats are trying to get through this, you know, payroll tax, getting rid of the sunset. Do we need two-thirds? Do we not need two-thirds? And and all of that played out in the end of the legislative session. But this was a way to do something um, and not have to deal with that finagling around the two-thirds votes that it would have required for the legislature to actually impose this tax versus authorizing the county commissions to then impose this tax. Yeah, always that word authorizing, which the county commission, I'm sure, is thrilled. Thanks for yeah, that authorization. Yeah. Oh, so right. Th- thanks for giving us. And, and I think, again, you know, it's, this is, this reminds me of the of the pot tax debate, too, when the people misunderstood exactly what money was going to be able to go to. This was portrayed as going to education, but there are other things in that bill mm-hmm. that it talks about. Jackie mentioned some of the social programs. Right at the last second, there was something thrown in that, that could help the, the uh, Nevada partners, hospitality, yep. Uh, yep. and edge uh, of the culinary Union and, and and Jackie, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, but basically we have no idea how this money is going to be apportioned. All of these groups that want part of this fifty million plus have to come to the county commission and justify why they want it, what what they're going to use it for, right? Yeah. So the uh, the ordinance that was uh, up for consideration yesterday actually had a section that uh, said. You know, 50% would go to these social service type programs and the other 50% would go to the Clark County School District. They stripped that part, though, uh, when they voted on the, the ordinance yesterday. And that largely was because of some of these looming distrust issues with the school district. The commission is still a little irked about the open schools, open campuses debate they're having. The commission wants school grounds to be open to public. The school district's pushing back, saying that there's BLM issues and otherwise so they're saying, okay, well, we haven't even been able to accomplish that. How do we, you know, trust that you'll be able to get these up and running? And I think it's probably a valid concern in some senses because they're going to be, you know, creating these different programs to address things. And that's 
going to take a lot of manpower <laughs> to get them up and running initially. So the school district really uh, uh, has no idea how much money uh, it's going to get and how long this is going to take to get. And they put this crazy sunset on it. Uh, Megan, didn't we hear from Brian Sandoval at the end of his term, sunsets are a bad idea, let's never do them again? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I think I think that happened, but here, here we are again. Here we are again. It's, it's such a gimmick. And and I guess what I'm wondering, Jackie, and we have a, a little more than a minute left. You just covered, uh, you mentioned distrust, this terrible, you know, brinkmanship between the, 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 the union and the local union and the school district, the lack of trust. School district doesn't have the money. Suddenly they're finding the money and pushing it over from grants, et cetera. How does this kind of uh, uh, uncertainty now affect the school district's budget, if at all? Do, do, do we know that? What, what is The superintendent had some something to say, right, but not much. Yeah, I mean, he came and spoke in support of it. You know, obviously these are all things that would help the school district and you know, I think the theory being that if they're getting this extra infusion of cash, however it may come, you know, whatever form it may take, it could free up other funds in the district for different purposes. But what's happening is the county staff is going to come back in supposedly 30 days with sort of a grant program, and then that's a call for applications. And the money, you know, the tax won't go into effect until January. The money won't be available till April sometime. So we're still a good six months or so out from even seeing these dollars come through. And I don't think that's what the legislature had in mind when they did this. I think they thought that the money was going to be, I think the school district thought it was going to be getting the money immediately, no? Well, I mean, I think they insinuated that initially. And right. Then- <laughs> Things always change. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, more mystery on the education funding front, both politically and substantively. All right, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, Megan and Jackie, thanks for coming on uh, uh, the podcast this week. And thanks for listening. And uh, we are now going to try to find our cars miles away, thanks to the UNLV parking situation. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Indie Matters. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can find our catalog of over 100 episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want to let me know how we're doing with the podcast and have any comments, concerns, or suggestions, you can email me at joey at thenvindy.com. And if you want to advertise with us, you can email editors at thenvindy.com. And if you would like to donate to our brave venture into the caverns of nonprofit journalism, you can go to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, and click on the Support Our Work button. I'd like to thank John, Jackie, and Megan for being on this week, and the crew over at KUNV for letting us record in their Vegas studio. Our theme song is by People With Bodies, who you can follow on Spotify for more awesome music. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Indie Matters. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.